0: Uh, well, it's uh, as Pastor John said, he's been gone for a while, then coming back to uh, a book. I'm, I'm actually going to come back to James, I think, today, but I do have a, a longer introduction today. But, uh, but it's good to be back in the book of James with you. But before we actually dive into these passages, <clears throat> I want to call your attention to a hymn, Blessed Assurance, and probably you're familiar with this hymn. Uh, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is Mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. And the chorus goes, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And this, this is a, a well-known and loved hymn uh, that we often sing, and Jubilant Sykes uh, often sings it. Uh, I'll, I'll try and do a little rendition of Jubilant right now. <laughs> no, no. I, <laughs> I would not do that to you all. <laughs> I love you too much to put you through something like that. Uh, you don't have to endure that. But, uh, but certainly a lovely hymn written by Fanny Crosby uh, about 150 years ago. But uh, the opening lines of this hymn, uh, Blessed Assurance... Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Uh, What a great thought. Blessed assurance. How wonderful it is to have assurance of salvation. The songwriter says it's a foretaste of glory divine. It's like a sampling of heaven. It's like heaven here on earth when we have this great assurance. Uh, The Puritan Thomas Brooks also talked about the greatness of having assurance When he wrote, genuine assurance will be a spring of joy and comfort in you. It will make heavy afflictions light, long afflictions short, and bitter afflictions sweet. It will make you frequent, fervent, constant, and abundant in the work of the Lord. What a wonderful thing that assurance is. In fact, Thomas Brooks wrote a book on assurance called Heaven on Earth. And I think the title itself Uh, points to what a wonderful thing assurance is. To have that confidence in knowing that you are God's child and that you are saved. Assurance brings peace and joy. It enriches our time as we commune with God uh, to to know that we're his child. Assurance makes us active in serving the Lord Um, and in evangelizing. If you are not confident you're God's child, are you going to be sharing the gospel with others. You will probably not. You will probably be so self-focused and so concerned about your own heart that it will dampen your evangelistic zeal. Well, the good news about assurance is that it's possible. We can have it. As a believer, you can have assurance. And not only can you have it, God wants you to have it. Um, it is possible we're encouraged to have assurance. It's not presumptuous. There are some, uh, particularly um, in some other religions that are more works-based, would say it's presumptuous to have assurance. You don't know if you're really gonna be saved until the end of your life. But the scripture teaches otherwise. The scripture says you can have confidence and you can have that assurance of salvation. Second Peter 1.10 says, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, that we can make certain about it. And then in the book of 1 John, verse John 5.13, he writes, these things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life, that we can know that we have it. And 1 John is a wonderful book that explains how you can know that you have eternal life. You believe the truth about Jesus Christ. You want to demonstrate your love for God by obeying him in all you do. And that overflows in your love for others as well. 1 John is a great book to study on this. And every believer should strive towards assurance of salvation. But that said, assurance isn't guaranteed for every believer just because you're saved doesn't mean that you have assurance. You can truly be God's child and then but still walk around unknowing concerned about your own heart and lack that joy that comes from assurance. Now that said, realize it's it's a different thing than salvation. So you can be saved even if if you don't have assurance. And so We understand that a true believer can lose assurance, but you can't lose your salvation. Pastor John did such a wonderful job this morning looking at Romans 8. I appreciate he did that lead-in for my sermon today. Um, I tell you, I just asked, and he said, sure, Rodney. Happy to do so. So, amazing, amazing. Big-hearted guy. No, but... But what he taught on this morning is such a wonderful truth that we hold on to that when God saves you, when Christ's sacrifice has atoned for your sins, that your debt of sin has been wiped away, covered by what Christ did, that he paid for that sin and then credited you with his righteousness so that when God looks upon you, he looks on Christ's righteousness. That is something that once that occurs, once God has done that, it's not removed from you. And Romans 8 was such a great passage that uh, looked at that. In fact, there it is right there. Um, Neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ our Lord. And what, what a great thing it is to have uh, that knowledge that salvation won't go away. Once you are God's child, you cannot be disowned by God. You will not be disowned by God. And as we saw in Romans 8, if God was willing to sacrifice his own son, which is the greatest act of love possible, will he not also hold you? Will he not also give you all things, as it says in Romans 8? So again, therefore although you may not enjoy full assurance, that doesn't mean you're not saved. On the other hand, you can have a false assurance without saving faith. It is possible to be saved without assurance, but it's also to have some kind of an assurance, a false assurance even though you're not saved. It's possible to think that everything is fine. Everything is going to be okay. But you shouldn't have that confidence. One of the most heartbreaking passages, I think, in all of Scripture is in Romans 7, 21-23. This passage to me is, is so tragic when you think of these individuals who come before Christ. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There will be those who have told themselves they're in good standing with God, who truly believe that when they stand before the Lord one day, that he will let, usher them into heaven. And they'll say, Lord, Lord, we've done these things. We've done what are really religious acts here. Prophesy in your name. Cast out demons in your name. And in your name perform many miracles. They are looking in this passage, looking to these religious experiences, religious acts, that God will let them into heaven. And there's still many who do that today. There's still many who think, well, I'm I'm going to church. In fact, I go to both services and evening service. (laughs) I even helped in Shepcon for so many years. I've done all these things. Everything is good. Everything is right. And some will look to that religious experience. Some will look to a moment of time, they'll think, well, I remember praying a prayer when I was five, and that, that's how I can have my confidence. I remember that prayer that was made when I was five. I remember going to a conference <clears throat> when I was growing up, and in this conference, the speaker was, was seeking to help those who had doubts about their salvation. He said, you know what? The devil doesn't want you to have assurance, so what you do be the most earnest that you can in praying to God for salvation and then write the date on a, on a stake of wood and go put it in your backyard and have that there as a monument. And anytime the devil wants to say, no, you have, you're not a believer, you're not God's child, you go to that backyard and you point to that piece of wood and you say, devil, see that that happened on that day. And that was his counsel, his, his advice on how we can have confidence, that we can look to a, an experience, a moment in time, and say, that is how I know that I'm saved. But such a test of whether we're saved or not is not how Scripture gives it. At least I don't know any verse that talks about you know putting in a little... Um, stake of wood in, in the back of yard or, uh, or any sign for yourself. That's not how Scripture says that we can have assurance. The key to assurance is have, making sure you have true faith. Genuine assurance comes from genuine faith. And true assurance is then based on God's promises, Christ's completed work, and the Holy Spirit's transforming work in you. We know that we are saved if we're looking completely for God to do the saving. False assurance, on the other hand, is based on your prayer, your religious deeds, or even your own measure of faith. If we say, well, I I know I did this, I know I prayed this prayer, I know I walked that aisle, I know I raised my hand or I made eye contact with the uh, speaker or whatever the thing was... Um, then that's not a strong assurance to have. We need to put our faith in what Christ has done. Not on how you necessarily, uh, what you did in your response to that. Because the gospel is this. The gospel is to say that you can't do anything. That there is no way that you can add to your salvation. Not even your own measure of faith can add, but God works in you to put your faith in Christ. And that it's because of the completed work of Jesus, not because of anything you add, that gives you salvation. And and the gospel is completely the work of God. That being the case, assurance needs to come also on trusting what God has done and not what we have done. So we must be careful to fight against a false assurance. So genuine assurance then comes from genuine faith. False assurance is built on a false faith. Therefore, to obtain assurance in your faith, the first step then is examine the validity of your faith. Examine the validity of your faith. What am I trusting in to be saved? And that is exactly what we find in the book of James. The book of James, as we've been looking at, gives these different marks of genuine faith. The book of James tells us, look, if this, if you have real faith, this is what your life will look like. You will be different than you were before. You'll be different than the world around you. There are 13 marks of genuine faith that are given to us. And we've already seen a few so far in the book of James, haven't we? In chapter 1, we started off saying that genuine faith considers trials as joy. Genuine faith, if you have genuine faith, the trials of life will cause you to turn toward God, not turn away from God. If you face trials and it makes you become bitter toward God, well, that, that should raise a red flag for you. Is my faith genuine? But if it if you run to God and say, Lord, I don't know why this is happening, but I trust you that you are using this for your glory and for my good. That is a great sign that you have a genuine faith. We also saw in chapter 1, verses 19 to 27, a genuine faith receives the word humbly. A true child of God will receive the word eagerly and put into practice what God's Word says. There'll be a hunger for God's Word, to know the Word more, and to be a doer of the Word, as it said in chapter 1. And then we saw in the last section, verses 1 to 13, genuine faith loves without favoritism. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at uh, James chapter 2. You can turn there. But in the first 13 verses in James chapter 2, it it said we cannot have a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of partiality. Those two are not compatible. If you are more interested in self than loving others, that is a sign that your faith is not genuine, that your love is not toward the Lord. Now we're going to come to a fourth test in the book of James to test what is genuine faith. And we'll see in Verses 14 to 26, that genuine faith produces good works. Now, there are some who would view the content of this passage as out of character with the other epistles in the New Testament. Uh, Some would suggest that Paul and James were at odds with each other, that they had different theologies with each other. But as we begin to walk through this passage, we'll see that is not the case. The ultimate author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit used the Apostle Paul. He used the Apostle James, John, and others. And there is no contradiction in God's Word if we are careful to interpret it correctly. So we want to walk through this passage carefully and see exactly what are we learning here from the book of James about genuine faith. So I hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to look at verses 14 to 26. Let me read that for you. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and is in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith. If it has no works is dead being by itself. But someone may well say you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now what we're going to see in this passage is an analysis of a false faith. A false faith, a faith that doesn't work, a so-called faith, a dead faith and a useless faith. Someone who has a false faith can easily have a false assurance. So what we will see are four failures of a false faith. I practice saying that because of all those uh, of the alliteration there. Four failures of a false faith. I was thinking of a false faith, four failures. But I didn't trust myself. So four failures of a false faith is what we'll see in this passage. So as we do this, Uh, study here. We're not going to be able to go through the whole passage today. But for some, hopefully it'll be very confirming. And you can, as you study this passage, realize, you know what? God has done a work in my life, and it's evidenced by how God has changed me and how I live. But others may need to examine themselves and say, you know, I guess my life isn't different than the world, than what I was before knowing Christ. And if that's the case, I pray that this would be very beneficial to you in examining and coming to Christ and really giving your life to Him. But as I said, we're going to see four failures of a false faith. The first one is in verse 14. False faith doesn't save. And you see at the end of verse 14 there, it says, can that faith save Him? And then in verses 15 to 17... We're going to say that, see that false faith doesn't live. It's, it's dead. False faith doesn't live. And we see in verse 17, even so faith, if it has no works, is dead. And really, it's just these first two points we'll get to today. But in a future week, we'll look how false faith doesn't benefit. It's useless. False faith doesn't benefit. And then in the future as well, we'll see the fourth point, false faith isn't perfected. And then examples of both Abraham and Rahab are given in this latter half of this section. And Abraham's faith, which was a genuine faith, was perfected. But a false faith is not perfected. So again, we'll just be looking at these first two today. And the first point is this false faith doesn't save. And we see that in the very first verse, verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? As we've pointed out many times, he uses the term my brethren uh, to introduce a new topic. Uh, Now, it's related to the previous topic because he has been talking about genuine faith, but a new subtopic, if you will, and talking about faith and how it should result in works. So he mentions my brethren there, and obviously a, a tender appeal as he knows what, how important this is. And he asked two rhetorical questions in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works, can that faith save him? And the key there is if someone says he has faith. If someone says he has faith. Now, James is not saying if someone has faith, he could have written that. But no, this is someone who says, someone who made a claim of faith. This is someone who's saying, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. I, I do have faith as well. But it's merely a claim. And as we'll see, it's not a reality. And, But we do see that this person is not an outsider of the church either. This is a person who is inside the church, who has said, yes, I want to be counted among the believers. I am one of those who follow Christ. It is someone who is making a claim of faith. And I think that's why um, it is such a tragic thing. It's tragic when those people reject Christ outright and walk away. But those who give themselves a false assurance, how more tragic is that? And so here is someone making this claim of faith. That's inside the church. And so what we'll see here through this passage, as he introduces it here in verse 14, that the subject is faith. And that's been the subject here. And then he follows up, says he has faith with, can that faith save him? And the focus then is the, on the authenticity of faith, not a necessary addition to faith. As we said earlier, the beginning of chapter 2, He starts off by talking, do not hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ in an attitude of favoritism. Again, the idea, it's the faith that's the important thing. For those who want to say that, well, James is the apostle of works and Paul is the apostle of faith, are not reading James very carefully, because James is certainly emphasizing faith here, and he is not pitting faith against works. He's not saying, this one's good and they're at war with each other, faith at works. He's not even placing them on equal footing. Faith is important, and also works are important, and they're, they're both what's needed to have a right relationship with God. And he's not even saying that works need to be added to faith. That's, all of these are wrong understanding. That's not what James is doing here. What he is saying is genuine faith will result in works. If it's an apple tree, it will produce apples genuine faith will always produce works and that's what James is focusing on is what is genuine faith not what should be added to genuine faith now we know from scripture and again i want to stress the importance of the necessity of faith and faith alone that saves because that is the consistent testimony of scripture is it not we do not believe that our works contribute in any way to our salvation we see that repeatedly through Scripture. In the book of Romans, such a wonderful treatment on justification and how one is saved. It's very clear. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 328. And then in 4, five, To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Paul is very clear in the book of Romans. It is justification by faith apart from works. Galatians just as clear. Galatians three eleven. Now that no one is justified by law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. Very clear. It's faith alone that saves. Ephesians two eight and nine. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Titus as well. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So again and again, and to these passages, we can add dozens and dozens more, can't we? We know that Scripture teaches we're saved by faith alone. We must remind ourselves of that truth and not get confused about what we're studying. But again, people want to take these passages that are so clear and then put them in contrast to James and say, well, Paul and James weren't on the same page. Paul was saying faith alone, but James is saying works are so important. Well, let's look back at some of these books of the Bible These letters that Paul wrote in Romans, yes, so clear. A man is justified by faith apart from works. But also in Romans 6, 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In Galatians, which made such a clear statement, no one's justified by the law also says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. In Ephesians, clear statement, maybe our favorite passage we go to about uh, grace you've been saved through faith. Verses eight and nine are followed by verse 10. Don't stop at nine. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then again, in Titus, which made a clear point, it's not on the basis of our deeds, it also says in Titus 2, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Throughout Scripture, the testimony is clear. You are saved by faith alone. God's grace through faith. But it is also abundantly clear that saving faith will result in a changed life. You will live differently because genuine faith, saving faith, means that your life has been changed. You're a new creation in Christ. And so you will live differently because God has done that work within you. So we can't see Paul and James opposed to one another. Just to illustrate this, uh, this is how people view it. They're fighting each other. Uh, James and Paul uh, drawing swords. This again, it's a wrong understanding of Paul defending that man is saved by faith alone. And James, on the other hand, saying that faith is dead if it does not result in good works. As if they're against one another, each fighting for different things. But we need to understand, James is not talking about one person has faith and doesn't add works to it. He's saying someone claims to have faith, but it turns out not to be a genuine faith. So a better picture of what's going on, uh, how about that? (laughs) That took a long time. (laughs) Let's do that again. Oh, look at that. Huh? Look at that. I I had to up my PowerPoint game. Brad's really good at his PowerPoint, so I had to do something here. Just up it a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, Gus will like it. This is a better picture. James and Paul are actually fighting back-to-back against opposite errors. They both in the middle hold to the same thing, that man is saved by faith alone and that faith is dead if it does not result in good works. They both hold to that reality. But James is fighting the error that some think that genuine faith doesn't result in good works. Some are saying, well, I, you know, I have faith and you have works they're two different things. James is saying, no, genuine faith will always result in good works. On the other hand, Paul is fighting those who are thinking, well, I can earn my way to salvation. I'm going to add these good works to my faith to be saved. So Paul is fighting that error. So it looks like they're opposed, but really they're, they're on the same page. They just focus their writing on different errors, different foes of the gospel. So we need to see it in that way and see that the harmony between these two passages. And we know then that a genuine faith will be a faith that that does works, as we see in verse 14. And that is a failure of a false faith. It doesn't save. It's not a saving faith. And so James introduces this topic here in verse 14. But now he goes on in verses 15 to 17 to begin to illustrate what this looks like. To actually give us a picture of this. And James is always excellent at doing that, isn't he? He, he loves to paint these pictures in our minds so we can clearly see what he's talking about and understand it. And in this second part here, we'll, we'll see that false faith doesn't live. It is, instead, it's, it is dead. And here James gives an illustration, a vivid illustration of inactive faith. And this is best seen as an illustration rather than an example. So what's the difference between the two? An illustration is painting a picture so you understand the main point. An example is this is the main point in action. That said, this illustration also has a lot to teach us and a lot to learn from as well. And so we'll we'll consider that too. But this illustration that James uses here, when making the point that genuine faith must result in actions, is one about caring for poor. Caring for poor among those in the church, of a brother or sister who is in need. There were, very, there were a lot of poor believers in the church at that time. And we've seen that already in chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. It talked about the rich and the poor there in the congregation. And even earlier in chapter 2, in favoritism, that people could have the tendency to favor those who are rich. It will speak about the rich and the poor later in the book of James as well. So that's a a reality in the church. So he didn't just grab any illustration, but an illustration that made his point and taught how we should respond to those in need. So the illustration is this. A brother or sister is without clothing and in daily need of food. Now this brother or sister is in dire need. It says without clothing, and we wouldn't, shouldn't think of a without clothing in absolute terms, but in terms of like wearing rags, wearing very little, maybe not having warm clothes for the winter, um, but without as much clothing as would be necessary in life, and perhaps even worse is in lack of daily food. Daily food is just what it sounds like. It's food for that day. It is the ongoing sustenance needed day by day. So this issue, this poor brother, it wasn't theoretical. Like, you know what? Maybe sometime this guy's going to be in trouble. This sister's going to be in trouble. It's like, this is a need right now. Something needs to be done right now. The situation was dire. It was immediate. So here we have this brother, sister in this dire need. And then we see another person come into the picture. One of them says to them, to the brother or sister, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, but does nothing, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body. And immediately we see the callousness of this person. I mean, even how that's phrased, it's... it's uh, Be warmed and be filled like it can magically happen. Um, It's in the passive voice, like, yeah, maybe some way it'll happen to you. Knowing this exactly what this person needs is to be warm and be filled. So it's not like this person doesn't understand the need. The need is seen. It's obvious need. It's not that, well, I had no idea. The person sees the need and yet callously says, be warm and be filled. Good luck with that, you know, all that is going on with you, good luck, is, is a shocking callousness to recognize the need and not give anything that is necessary for the body, not provide any help at all. The question is, what use is that? Well, the, the answer it's rhetorical, of course. What use is that? Well, it's no use. It's absolutely useless to, to say such words. In fact, it's more than useless it's offensive. And that's the idea. This is supposed to shock the reader. This is supposed to say, wow, (laughs) you know, that's over the line. That is outrageous that someone would say that to someone who is in such desperate need. And the illustration is just for that purpose. It should seem outrageous to us. Now, I'm I want to talk about how this fits into James' point, but first, I don't want to bypass the illustration because it is it points to helping the needs of others and something that Scripture reminds us that we are to care for those who are in need. Um, We see that, obviously, in this passage, phony, fake compassion is repulsive. And yet that can even happen in the church. But Scripture is clear that we can't have a false compassion. We can't say that we care for someone and do nothing. It's a reminder that false compassion is repulsive and has no place in the church. Scripture is clear on how we are to care for the needy. And we can see that, and I just listed a few here. Proverbs 19.17, One who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, will repay him for his good deed. Galatians 6.10, So then while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. 1 John 3.17, But whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And that 1 John passage, what an excellent parallel to this illustration here. Even though we may say that our passage it, it serves to uh, further James' point, well, 1 John 3.17 is, is the exact teaching, and so it's so parallel to what we're talking about here, we can't ignore that message. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? The point is, look, if you... Know God's love. If God has changed you and you're a new person in the Lord, you will necessarily be a person who has compassion on others. And if you don't, you have to question, okay, am I one who really loves the Lord? That's the point that John makes, which is, again, so similar to what we see here. We must guard against false compassion that says, oh, I care, but then fails to do anything. Now, I understand. Real-life situations are complicated, and there are a lot of factors to consider to provide help for someone. We can't be oblivious to that. Yes, there are challenges, and and sometimes what's needed is not just handing out money everywhere to everyone who's poor, but a kind of help that will set them on a stable path, long-term help. And that's true, helpful, demonstrable compassion Is not just the first thing, but the ongoing. How do you help them move forward? But too often, we can use the difficulties, the complications, and say, well, it's all too much. I I just don't want to get involved. And we need to guard against that. We need to be careful not to be those who are quick to make all the excuses, all the reasons not to help. Um, And I speak to myself I speak to all of us uh in that it is so easy to to focus on the difficulties rather than okay well what can we do what can I do uh to help someone so it is it is definitely true that we need to be guard against this false compassion we need to help but the main point again going back to the main point of what James is saying here is that We need to see how ugly this false compassion is, how empty it is, in the same way that words of compassion without action are repulsive and show that with a lack of true compassion, in the same way saying words, I have faith and total inaction in your life is equally repulsive to God. If we are shocked by this illustration, like how could someone say, oh, you know, be warm and fed. I, I have compassion on you, but do nothing. We should be just as shocked for someone to say, well, yeah, I have faith, but yeah, my life hasn't changed. Well, that's ridiculous. It's as ridiculous as this illustration is as well. Compassion without action reveals itself as false compassion. And faith that is unaccompanied by action is therefore a false faith as well. And he describes it as dead. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. And dead's an appropriate description because that means it's inactive. It can't do anything, it has no life to it. It's not a real faith, it's a dead imitation of faith. Again, we must not see James as speaking ill of faith. James points to we, we must have faith. Faith is how we're saved. And yet it's got to be a genuine faith, is his point. Faith is what's important, but let's make sure it's a true faith. And I appreciate what one commentator writes, works are not an added extra to faith any more than breath is an added extra to a living body. It's not like, yeah, he's a living person and he breathes. Well, it's a living person. Of course he's breathing. If it's a real faith, of course it's acting. Of course there's a changed life. But if there isn't a changed life, then it's dead. It's worthless. It does nothing. And James says, be careful that that's not the faith that you claim. If you're one of those who says, I have faith, but you don't see any change in your life, then then you have reason not to have assurance. You shouldn't have any confidence that you're a child of God. So as far as application, it's clear. But let me just walk through that. Is my faith evidenced by how I live? Ask yourself that question. Is there evidence in how I live that I have a true faith, a genuine faith? If you want to have assurance first check on your faith. What does what my faith look like? Am I following the Lord? If the way you live outside of the church and away from the people in the church looks like everyone else in the world, if at the workplace, they would have no idea you're a Christian by the way you live. Boy, that should give you pause. Because a true Christian, someone with true faith, will have a changed life. You'll be different than the world around you. If seeking to honor God is not characteristic of your life, then you should examine your soul. Where am I putting my faith? Is it in some prayer I did at one time? Or is it totally on Christ and that He has changed me as a result? Or if there's an ongoing sin in your life, you know of this sin. And it's been something you have been holding on to. And it just repeats again and again with no repentance on your part. Then you should question, okay, how can I hold on to sin if I'm truly a child of God? If I have genuine faith that Jesus died for my sin, if I'm saying the one I love more than anything in the world that I've given my life to, suffered and died on the cross for my sin, and then I'm just willing to go do it, boy, it seems like there's a total disconnect there. And you should very much question whether you have genuine faith. But I want to add to that, secondly, am I looking to add works to my faith? Some may say here, yes, I do seek to honor God with my life and I'm ready to repent of sin in my life, but I'm concerned I'm not doing enough to be pleasing to God. And I have faith, but I still occasionally sin and I'm not doing enough good works. Well, let me remind you, that is not what the gospel requires. You do not have to add any works to be saved. It will be the result. You'll see the fruit of it. But don't look to your own works and say, am I doing enough? Am I godly enough for God to save me? Because you're not. I'm not. No one is. And you can have confidence saying, you know what? I'm trusting in Christ. I'm not perfect but I'm trusting in what Christ has done alone, and praise God, I've seen changes in my life, not perfect yet, but I praise God for what he's done, then you can have an assurance. You can say, you know, thank you God for what you've done. Now we are instructed to examine ourselves. Second Corinthians 13.5 reminds us to examine ourselves to see whether we're in the faith. But sometimes we can do that ad infinitum, just... Always be looking, always brooding on self. Am I saved? Am I saved? Constantly. So do look. Do examine your heart. But look to Christ even more. Robert Murray McShane had this quote, which I appreciate. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Examine your heart. Do I? Is there evidence of my love for the Lord? Is there evidence of a changed life because I love the Lord? Yeah, I believe there is. And then think of, and isn't the Lord great for what he's done for me? Think of what Christ has done and continue to dwell on what Christ has done for your sin. And in that way, fruits will result. It'll happen. Not because you're striving to earn your salvation, you're trying to prove your salvation, but because you're so filled with the love of Christ that you'll just live to please him in what you do. Assurance starts with faith in what Christ has done. So you want to fill your mind with him and what he has done and then just live consistently with that love for Christ. All right. Well, let's, let's pray that that would be true in our lives. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you that it is your grace that saves us. It is completely your work that has made us new people and not our works, not even how much faith we were able to drum up, but You did the work and even gave us the faith that we have. Lord, we thank You for all that You have done, for what Christ has paid in our behalf. And Lord, may we fill our minds with love for Christ and our lives demonstrate that love in how we live. Jesus, you said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And may we indeed do that because we do love you. We thank you that when we know that we are your child, we know we cannot lose that and that you hold us fast, Lord. And we can live with joy knowing all that you have done. And so we give you praise in the name of Christ. Amen.